Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a junior host of the channel. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Marie Belcastro, the author of Discrete Mathematics with Ducks. The second edition was uh, published in 2018 by CRC Press, an imprint of Taylor and Francis, part of their textbooks and mathematics series. Now, that title is not in error, and it led me to expect a certain level of snark. More impressively, though, Dr. Belcastro has reimagined the tone and structure of an undergraduate textbook meant to guide a class rooted in discovery-based learning. Reading her book made me envy the classroom experiences of today's undergraduates as well as of their instructors. Sarah Marie, welcome to the podcast. To begin, could you say a bit about your background as an instructor and what prompted you to write this textbook? Sure. Um, So I got my PhD at the University of Michigan approximately a zillion years ago. And for a long time, I was a full-time faculty member, um, and I also had many years of teaching in programs for very bright high school students. Um, And I had um, chosen to change my career a little bit so that I was focusing more on these summer programs and less on the regular work of a faculty member because you can't actually do both of those things full on. So I have had a lot of positions where I'm sort of contingent faculty, like visiting positions or half of your positions or whatever to make room for everything. And in one of these, I was asked to teach college discrete mathematics. Now, I had already known at that point, because I am a mathematician who has been in academia and I keep abreast of all the textbooks, like not every single one, but, you know, the major textbooks in most of the undergraduate math classes. And I was well aware that there were not very popular undergraduate discrete math texts in the sense of not that there weren't well-selling ones, not that there weren't well-used ones, but that there weren't textbooks that all of my friends just loved. In fact, there were lots of textbooks that most of my friends and colleagues did not like. So I went around and was searching and I was like, okay, you want me to teach this class? I agree. I would love to teach this class. I know all the material of this class very well. What can I use as a textbook? And no one had a textbook that would fit the class at all. So what I ended up doing was thinking carefully about what material I thought should be in the class, collecting basically every textbook I could find, and sort of snipping out a chapter of this one, a section of that one, um, a topic from this one going to MIT courseware and picking a couple of lectures there. Um, There was this very old textbook by Ken Bogart that was entirely just a list of questions. And lots of that was pretty good, but also lots of it was really high level. So there was the problem of these two low level textbooks that didn't cover the material I wanted, two high level textbooks that uh, expected an introduction to proof already from the students. And so I just cobbled together a bunch of stuff. And at the end of the semester, one of my colleagues said, "Um, this is great. you know you need to write a textbook now, don't you? And I was like, ah, uh, yeah, okay. 
So there you go. So the genesis of the textbook was the unfortunate consequence of having compiled together the best material you could find. Uh, yes. Nice. Yep. Before we dive into the textbook itself, um, one of uh, your many previous affili- previous and current affiliations that I wanted to ask you about is the Center for Textiles and Conflict Studies. Can you tell me who are this organization and what they do? Uh, I will tell you that it is an organization composed of academics who specialize in cross-disciplinary fiber arts with a mission of using various disciplinary perspectives to help members navigate the academic landscapes of research, teaching, and service. That sounds a little bit scripted. Yeah. Is that coming from there? It is isn't scripted. Thank you for sharing. So I've been reading a few textbooks lately um, for the first time in a while, and it's been refreshing, or I found it refreshing, to read the author's guiding principles as an introduction to the style of the book. What were yours? So I wanted to write a textbook that would support a range of inquiry-based or active learning in class, because that's my teaching philosophy. And there were, and I guess still are, relatively few textbooks that are written for that. Um, I think I mentioned this Ken Bogart textbook, which was written that way, except that, first of all, the author was dead and so hadn't been able to revise it. But also, it was written for a very different level of class than what I was teaching. Like, Lots of people like that material, and I do too, but it goes from very low level to suddenly very high level in the middle of the text, so it's not appropriate for a sophomore level class. Um, So I knew that I had to do something that would incorporate middle level stuff from this perspective, and there just wasn't anything. Um, So that's where I wanted to go with it, and I, I think that how do I want to say this? So one of the reasons there are relatively few materials from this perspective is not just because there aren't that many people who do it, although it is growing. It's also because people tend to write very highly individualistic materials. Like they write their own stuff for their own class that isn't transportable to other people. And I wanted to do something that would be transportable, where other people could just pick it up and use it without having to basically rewrite it for themselves. I guess the thing I didn't really address there is like, why is that what I think is important in a textbook, um, I think that if you use inquiry-based or active learning, it helps students learn the material more deeply. And I think they retain the material for longer because they learned it more deeply. Um, And from a very global perspective, it helps give students practice in the process of learning so they become better learners. So it's sort of fulfilling also the global idea of what college is for is to help you learn how to learn stuff so that you don't have to take classes and everything for the rest of your life. It so happens I only recently took a course on science-based teaching, and a big component of it focused on active learning um, and a discovery-based learning. And I found it actually helpful to me as a potential instructor. It helped me learn how to teach better in addition to, I imagine, the, the, the style helping students how to learn better on their own or within the, within the framework of the course. Um, so there are a whole bunch of varieties of these things. In science, it tends to be more of this podial stuff. Um, can't remember what that stands for, problem-oriented, guided, inquiry learning. I, that might be yeah. what Pogel stands I'm probably wrong, so somebody should Google it and, and make sure that I've said something sort of right. Um, but the, the approach in the sciences tends to be a little bit different than the approach in math. And I think that in the sciences, there's more of a, I want to say, educational research-based, um, I don't want to say approach in there, but it's sort of more developed in terms of 
in science classes, you become a better teacher by doing this simply by following the formula. And there's a little bit less of a formula in the math side of it, I think. Like hmm. just the act in a science class of moving from a, an hour lecture followed later by a four hour lab, moving from that to simply structuring it as 20 minutes of lecture, half an hour of lab, another 20 minutes of lecture, another half hour of lab makes a substantial difference. So the book is designed, as you said, for a sophomore level course. Um, could you say a bit more about the audience you had in mind uh, while writing it, including the instructors as well as the students, and what guided your choice of content? So this is at once um, simpler than you'd think and more complicated than you think. The simpler is like, I just wanted to make a textbook that would be good for the institution where I was teaching at the time. But so at a small liberal arts college, which is where I was teaching, um, often a discrete math class has a ton of different constituencies, meaning it's often an introduction to proof course. It's often uh, the only class in the curriculum that deals with combinatorics or graph theory. It's often a requirement for computer science majors. So as opposed to at a large institution where you might actually have three different classes for that. Your combinatorics and graph theory will be an upper level class. There'll be a discrete math for computer science people that's either taught within computer science or it's one class in the math department that's geared toward the computer sciences exclusively. And then an intro to proof class might be its own class or might be embedded in either linear algebra or number theory or something. Um, but at a, a lot of um, small liberal arts colleges, if there's a discrete math class at all, it's going to be having all of these audiences at once. So I thought, okay, well, if I can have a book work for all of those audiences, it should probably work in other contexts as well. So my choices of content were entirely guided by, by meeting those needs. So for example, there are a lot of textbooks that are more elementary than mine, and then they have no combinatorics or graph theory real content to them. Or they're textbooks that have all the combinatorics and graph theory content, but they expect prior experience with proof. So I picked out combinatorics and graph theory content that doesn't need prior proof experience to deal with it. And then I built in the prerequisites that are needed for discussing that content. And this is sort of how the themes of the book happen. Like theme one is the basics, and then there's the combinatorics theme and the graph theory theme. So I kind of, I mean, there's stuff I knew was going to have to be in there. Um, that went in the basics. And then I started with the combinatorics and graph theory themes and then decided what had to go in the basics in order to get to the places I was going. And one of the themes of the, of the, um, of the book in, to me while reading it was the accessibility of the text. You stress this in your notes to the two potential instructors. In addition to um, the content, the design also aided in that accessibility. So can I ask what guided your aesthetic choices? So it's super interesting that you think that the design aided the accessibility because um, in the first edition, that was definitely not the case. It was black and white, and I basically wrote it all down, and there it was. And people complained all the time that they couldn't find definitions because I didn't have them necessarily set off as definition, blah, 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 blah. They were like in the middle of a sentence because that was the narrative way to introduce it. And the great thing about adding color my favorite color, was that I could do things like whenever it was a definition, I could just make it teal. So you'd flip to a nearby page and you'd see it jumping out at you. I was able to have boxes that had color so that I could use the elements of the book design to help people with learning the mathematics. Um, 
you know, and of course I got to add color to the diagrams and stuff. And that, that sometimes helps and sometimes it's just pretty. Um, so I guess I should also say that there are some of the, the choices in there that were not originally mine, but that I love. So for example, you'll see in some of the bulleted lists, the bullets are in the shapes of ducks. That was totally the idea of Charlotte Burns, my editor, who did copy editing, tweaking of every typesetting detail. She's super awesome to work with. Every time she ever sent me things and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the most awesome. We have to have that. So. Nice. Yeah. So jumping into the content of the book, um, the mathematical lessons are partitioned into basics, combinatorics, graph theory, and other material, these four parts with about four chapters each. I thought we could touch on a chapter section in each part that illustrates the book's style. And to begin with part one, um, in chapter three, you introduce functions and graphs from a couple of novel directions. So could I ask you to first introduce us to functions? Okay, um, this is trickier than it sounds. So the important property that a function has is that it's well-defined. And what that means is that for every input, there's exactly one output. So even if that input somehow has two different names, those two different named things have to lead to the same output. Um, and there are other properties that some functions have, like being one-to-one -one or onto, but not all functions have those properties. And something else, if I may introduce it into the conversation, is when I was originally introduced to functions or originally working with functions at a definitional level, I remember feeling there's these two properties, one-to-one -one and onto, but they only correspond to the function's relationship to its domain, not its relationship, or sorry, to its codomain, not to its domain. And you introduce a term that um, incorporates those constraints or loosens those constraints with, the, with respect to the function's domain, namely GIPOs. What is a so, GIPO? So GIPO stands for given input produces output. A lot of people in the high school level think of functions as black boxes where you put something in, you get something out. But that isn't necessarily a function because you might put something in or like put in three things and get out five. And th that is not well-defined. So I wanted a term to describe those, actually not even because of that confusion, but because it is so easy when you are trying to create a function to do something, to accidentally create something that isn't a function. And then you need a name to talk about the thing that you created. Like, well, that's not a function. It's a, uh, a GIPO. Yeah. So um, I don't think anybody else uses this term. I made it up for that purpose because I had to have something to talk about these things. It's particularly true in algebra, like abstract algebra, which is where I've had that problem myself most often, where I'm trying to define a map to do something. And then I start checking all the properties and then suddenly discover when I get to the end, it wasn't well defined. And, oh, I was an idiot. Darn, what did I do? Have to fix that. Um, but I've seen it happen at lower level classes too. And I thought, well, one of the purposes of a discrete math class is also to help prepare students for upper-level classes. So I might as well embed this thing in so by the time students get to situations where they're much more likely to accidentally define things that aren't functions, they have a way of built into their brains, like, oh, I better check that. So, yeah, the diagrams of the functions and, and, and GIPOs and other uh, and functions with various properties led in a little bit or visually anyway, to the topic of graph theory, which, um, and you introduced graphs in the second part of this chapter. So could you define them as well or introduce us to them and maybe also to the dot game you described? Sure. A graph is a bunch of dots and some of the dots are considered next to each other 
and we represent the property of next to each otherness by connecting those dots by curves. Um, I don't know if you wanted to know anything particular about them, but I can tell you the dot game is when you and a friend or a, a frenemy maybe take turns adding the connections in different colors, and you're trying to each avoid making a triangle in your own color, and you're trying to make your opponent make a triangle in hair color. Yeah, I tried playing this with my mom as uh, uh, more recently just to get a flavor for the game because I wasn't able to I wasn't able to really the right way play it on my own while I was originally reading the book. And some strategies emerged as you suggested they would. And it was a very interesting, I thought, introduction, not just to graph theory, but to the kinds of questions that theoreticians ask about graphs. Sure. Even in ongoing research. I mean, what what's funny is that um, people often go to the game theoretic aspect of this which there are papers on it, but not a lot. And I don't touch on that in the textbook because they don't actually go anywhere in nice and tidy. Um, but the great thing is, is actually just determining under what conditions you can always force a win or a loss without thinking about strategy. That's what turns out to be great about that problem is that it turns out you don't, the strategy isn't even helpful <laughs> after a certain point. You just use logic and you can prove some stuff. And I don't want to say more because, I mean, I'll say more, but not about that, um, because I want people to discover that for themselves and maybe look it up in the book. Yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave readers to, uh, to, to discover that, uh, the outcome of that uh, late game. So moving on to part two on combinatorics, chapter seven introduces us to box and ball counting techniques, which I'll bet are familiar to any student of combinatorics, but I don't think I've ever seen them discussed outside of like technical mathematical uh, exchanges. So um, you introduced these with several tactile examples, which I enjoyed. So could you give us a sense of how you use, um, how you introduce these techniques and how you encourage students to use them? So balls and boxes problems are really hard. And the reason is trying to figure out what the problems are actually asking. Because if you see a ball and box problem in the wild, it's not usually phrased in terms of balls and boxes. So the first thing I do in the book is to give examples of different problems and highlight how to translate those problems into problems about balls and boxes. So like it might be something about like, you know, handing out mittens to a bunch of children or choosing dancers to be in a dance piece or, you know, any number of things like this. Um, because that turns out to be the hard part is figuring out what the problems are asking. And then later after we've gone through that, the text gives solutions for the same exact sort of quote-unquote practical balls and boxes problems. Um, when, I'm, when I'm teaching it, usually there's a, almost an entire day that we go through where, well, first we go through a day of saying, okay, here's a type of ball and box problems. How do you think we can try to solve this? And what often happens is people will come up with solutions that other people will say, wait, isn't that actually a solution to a different problem? Because it's really tangly. And then we end up having another day where we just like sort of throw a whole bunch of problems on the board and say, which ones are these? You know, I mean, that's I, like I have tried this sections in the books and there there is a couple of them where it's just like a list of problems. And what are they? And then how do you solve them? Because it's it's hard. Yeah. And one of the fun things fun. Well, for me as a student was fun about ball and box problems was that they, in some sense, can translate into each other in fun ways. And one of my favorite figures in the book was one from that section that uh, I can't remember what problem types it transfers one into another, but uh, at the top, there's a distribution of eggs, and at the bottom, there's these number candies. 
that you oh use. Oh my gosh, is- I am so glad you liked that diagram. It took me forever to draw that. I mean, I had this vision of it in my head and I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And in the middle of the diagram, if I recall correctly, there's like zoomed in bits where you can like there's a, you know, a dotted line circle surrounding a zoomed in piece of something to show what's happening to it. And oh my gosh, that of course takes forever to draw. And then there are like all these gradients and stuff. And ah, yeah, that was a yeah, I could certainly appreciate it. I don't necessarily expect every student to to appreciate the work that went into it, but it was certainly effective. Well, see, that's the thing. If it's effective, it was totally worth all the work. I mean, I actually don't mind doing technical illustration at all. I think it's kind of fun. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's a little trying. <laughs> so jumping ahead to part three, um, which is in graph theory, chapter 11 introduces Euler circuits and Hamilton circuits. So in this chapter, you do something I'm pretty sure I've never seen done before, which is a proof by story or proof by narrative. How do you use this technique and whether in class or as an assignment? So first of all, I would only ever do that in class. The way I do it, and I don't know that anybody else does it quite this way. Um, I do it as an interactive lecture, which is not a thing I usually do to begin with. But what I do is I give the story and then I get the students to name what happened in the story that is the actual math. And then I do a terrible thing, which is I try to make them figure out what theorem we proved. And this is terrible because it's a completely impossible assignment. Um, And I do it more because it's somehow mimicking a little bit of the way research progresses. Like, when you're doing research, sometimes you don't even know what result you're trying to prove. You just are like, what is even true about this situation? You just write down a bunch of stuff and you're like, is there a theorem in there? Um, and the theorem statement for that particular thing itself is not immediately apparent from the techniques that are used in the proof. So I usually have to give students lots of hints as to how to do it, or it's a common enough theorem that there's often one or two students who've seen it before, and sometimes they'll suddenly like, oh, I know what this must be, when they realize what's going on, and they get in on the action of trying to hint to other people what's going on, and then we eventually get the theorem, and then go over the proof in a, a regular way, but um, yeah. yeah it was, it's certainly one of the closer experiences I've had uh, looking at a textbook to research mathematics where you have no idea what's going on, but you ha- you see these patterns emerging and you follow them through and then have to start to try to formulate whatever the answer is without knowing even how it's going to be phrased at the beginning of the process. Yeah. So in part four, um, part four consists of several chapters on other material. Uh, and one of those is on number theory. Uh, an amazing but familiar result students see here is that the Euler phi function, phi function, phi function, I usually do phi function. I'll say phi function, so we have the complementary. So the Euler uh, phi function is multiplicative when its arguments are relatively prime. But you also introduce these freaky fraction lists, which were brand new to me, and I love to hear you introduce them, the medians that they use, and the arithmetic triangle they form. So this is pretty fun. Um, if you have two fractions, A over B and C over D, the median is what you get when you like add the numerators and add the denominators and put the two sums over each other. So you look at A plus C over B plus D. Um, and then you start with these two really boring fractions, 0 over 1 and 1 over 1. And then there's only one median you can make there. So you make it. You add the 0 and the 1. 
and the one over one and one. So you get one over two and you stick it in the middle. And then you just repeat. You go along and you take every pair and you make the median and stick it between them. And so you get these longer and longer lists and they have lots of weird, cool properties, many of which I do not even address in the textbook. I was impressed in particular that I don't want to give it away, but you can say something about the world of possible reduced fractions with respect to those that appear in the triangle. And yeah, oh, but there are cooler things that are not in the text. Like there's a link to um, imagine the following thing. You have a flat line and you take a couple of unit circles and you stick them on that line so that they're just touching. Mm-hmm. And that gives you this sort of like, weird negative space that's like flat on the bottom and curved into almost a curvy triangle on the top. And you can stick another circle there and you can Mm -hmm. stick some more circles in the gaps and stuff. And, um, well, I'll just say there's some interesting things about where the circles touch the line. Fair enough. We're investigating, um, and just seeing what, what fractions you get when you do things like that. And yeah. Good hints. Yeah. I I plan to follow up on that one anyway. (laughs) So I haven't taught classes in a while, but I did really get a lot out of the instructor notes at the ends of the chapters, Um, not just because I plan to teach courses, although I hope to, but also because they really brought the the active learning approach that, uh, that you wrote into the book more to life so I could see what it is you had in mind when laying out the chapters. How is the book structured to facilitate discovery based learning? So there are these sets of problems that students can do together in class that will help them discover most of the major ideas in most of the chapters. Uh, And I'm saying most because I couldn't think of ways of doing it for every concept in every chapter. Um, And I've tried to chunk those sets of problems so that the most important parts of each set are doable within one class session. And I've tried to include extra problems in case there are faster students who zip through a lot of problems. So they'll still have stuff to think about while their whole group is working on uh, a sequence of problems. So that in total, you can imagine um, a standard week in the class being that students either read a little bit of the book ahead of time or maybe a little more of the book ahead of time. They come into class and they just work on problems for a lot of the class. And then the ending of the class is the teacher pulling together what's been learned from the students working on these problems and then saying, okay, go home, read the part of the textbook that gives details on what you just did. Read a little bit further so that you'll see some definitions that we're going to use again and then sort of repeat the next day of class so that there's a lot the students are doing themselves. And, but they're getting reinforcement of it by what happens in the textbook afterwards. And one thing you do mention again in the um, prelude is among the things you ask students to do on their own is read parts of the text that you said other instructors tell you is difficult to do. Your solution? I just tell them to do it and they do it. I, so long time ago, long time ago, uh, I can't even tell you exactly what year. I'm going to say I think it was either 1994 or 1995 when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. There was, of course, lots of teacher training all the time, and there was some session given by Bob Meganson, and he gave a handout on how to get students to read the textbook, and it had 10 points on it, and I think seven of them were, don't lecture as though the students have not read the text. And so if, I think, at least it works for me, maybe I'm just really good at expecting really hard 
that I just, I'm like, I act as though students have done the reading I told them to do, and generally a critical mass of them at least do it. So we've taken a look at this book, and I'd like to ask a traditional question that I like to, what is another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours? (laughs) Well, I think it's the book Ducks by Daniel Pinkwater. And I think you cite it in the text, right? I remember oh, going I do. It. I do. It is a very, very excellent book. And on your own front, do you have another book project in the works? Uh, that is a good question. I have more than one book on the back burner right now. Um, one of them is a multivariable and vector calculus textbook that I've written a very tiny amount of. Um, And of course, one of the problems there is I have to decide on a title, which is people have suggested things like uh, multivariable and vector calculus with manatees and vibrant cuttlefish or or something like that. I don't don't exactly know if that's what would happen. Um, Another book I'm working on is a book on uh, realizable and regular polytopes which is a higher level book. It's not a standard textbook, but it's going to be textbook-ish at least. We haven't decided whether I have, I have one or possibly two co-authors. It's not quite clear yet. Um, we originally wanted to make a reference for the classification of regular polytopes because you can't find it all in any one place. Like any existing treatment of that material is missing one piece of it, referencing to somewhere else. And so we wanted to put it all in one place. And then in the process, we kept generating sort of more and more stuff. And then I realized we actually had a book on our hands and we might turn it into a textbook rather than a reference book. We're not really sure. Very cool. Well, the book we've been discussing is Discrete Mathematics with Ducks, second edition, published by CRC Press in 2018. And I've been talking with Sarah Marie Belcastro. Sarah Marie, thanks very much again for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great.